World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's getting more and more dry in the Panama Canal, which means less and less stuff is getting through it. We find that neighboring countries are considering how to take on some of that lucrative load. And their extra bulk was supposed to enrich farmers. But now, Canada's crossbred super pigs are running amok and causing chaos for the very farmers that they were supposed to help. First up, though. A series of viral campaign videos on TikTok are winning over the hearts and minds of young voters ahead of Indonesia's national election in two weeks. Su Lin Wong is our Southeast Asia correspondent. And there's one candidate who's a 72-year-old man by the name of Prabowo Subianto, who has very successfully rebranded himself with young people simply by dancing, but not very well. So there are all kinds of viral videos of him, especially on TikTok, you know, showing him raising his arms, shaking his hips. I recently saw one of him stripping off his shirt and waving it around his head as if he were like an 18-year-old football player and throwing it into the crowd to raucous applause. So as a result, young people across Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy, have flooded social media declaring that Prabowo is cute and like a cuddly grandpa, and it's really changed his reputation from what it used to be. So what did his reputation used to be? Prabowo Subianto has very controversial reputation. So he's the current defence minister of Indonesia, and he commanded special forces under Suharto, who was Indonesia's former dictator. In that role, he's accused of allowing human rights abuses in Timor-Leste in the 1980s. Then in the late 1990s, he ordered the kidnapping of more than 20 democracy activists, of whom 13 remain missing to this very day. And for a time, he was banned from entering both Australia and America because of these atrocities. Just to be clear, Prabowo himself denies wrongdoing. And he previously ran for president of Indonesia in both 2014 and 2019. And both times, he unilaterally declared victory when, in fact, he hadn't won. So many 
Indonesians who remember this history are very, very worried about him getting power. But at the same time, it seems like the vast majority of Indonesians don't actually know or don't care about his past. But that is to say that the young people then are leaning towards voting for him? That's right. He's very likely to become the next president of Indonesia. And one thing to note is that more than half of Indonesia's 204 million voters are millennials or younger. And Mr. Prabo is particularly popular among this group of people. Now, of course, it does help that he is backed by Jokowi, the current president, who is beloved and also obsessively curates his image on social media. And it's notable that Prabo has selected Jokowi's son as his running mate. So what we've seen in Indonesia over the last few years is the proliferation of smartphones and access to internet data across the archipelago. And so as a result, politicians are able to reach even those Indonesians who live on the remotest of the 13,000 islands that make up Indonesia. So essentially, politics in Indonesia is tending towards campaigning via TikTok. That's right. TikTok is a very, very popular platform here. Indonesia has the second highest number of active users on TikTok of any country in the world behind America. And the typical TikTok user in Indonesia scrolls for 29 hours every month. Some of the most popular TikTok videos posted by the candidates have been viewed tens of millions of times. Personalities have long trumped politics in Indonesian elections, and this election is no different. But it can't be that an entire election like this is going to be run without politics and policies and platforms and instead only about what goes viral. No, you're completely right, Jason. And you know, if you speak to young, engaged people in big cities like Jakarta, they're very, very aware of Mr. Prabowo's track record. They're concerned about the state of democracy. On Sunday, I was at an event called Festival Pemilu, or the Election Festival, and it was full of these kinds of really engaged young Indonesians who were very keen to talk about the presidential candidates, but also candidates for the legislative elections, which are happening on the same day. The festival really had this carnival-like atmosphere. People could roam around speaking to the different political parties. And there were a bunch of talks about how to make an informed choice, how to find high-quality information, how to discern what is fake news or what are hoaxes on social media, a whole afternoon of really thoughtful political chat. Uh, hi, my name is Apo Tami. I'm the co-initiator of Bijak Mamili, or Vote Wisely, and I'm the CEO of Think Policy, which is the organization behind it. I spoke with Afutami, and one thing she said was that there's a real disconnect in that Roughly 8% of young Indonesians say that they're politically engaged. But around 70% of young Indonesians say they're really anxious about their futures, about whether they're going to be able to find jobs, the state of the economy, what's happening to the environment in Indonesia. So Afutami was saying there's clearly a gap and a desire for good quality information from young Indonesian voters so they can make more informed choices. So when you use entertainment to wrap your message, you need to make sure that what's inside actually contains substance, like actually contains uh, something useful. And so um, 
it's inevitable, definitely, but we want to make sure that we create a demand uh, where the voters are smarter and they don't want to stop just like getting entertainment, but like entertainment that informs them on something. And so as a result, her organization, Bijak Mamili, really uses accessible ways to engage young voters. For example, they'll often put out videos that are in the vein of Saturday Night Live where they parody the candidates and what they've said at recent debates. Or they have quizzes on their website to educate people about policies about the economy or the environment, what have you, so that younger voters can learn about the direction the country's heading in in ways that are palatable to them. So as regards this coming election, then, which of the forces is going to win out, do you think, the sort of general wishing to be entertained or the wishing to be informed? Unfortunately, I think it's the former. Afatami's organization is doing really great work, but she herself said to me that they have had around 1 million people visit their website so far. And if we think about the Indonesian electorate, there are around 100 million young voters. So I think the vast majority of young voters are still turning to TikTok. The campaign funding of all three of the candidates has been made public by the Electoral Commission. And Mr. Proboo has a lot more money to spend than the other two candidates. And that really means the TikTok battle for the presidency is far from fair. Sulin, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of focus has fallen recently on the Red Sea, as Houthi rebels have been attacking shipping and naval vessels, causing trade volumes to drop by 40%. But halfway around the world, another dent to trade is playing out, a 30% drop since November in what's getting through the world's second busiest man-made shipping lane. The Panama Canal will make more cuts to the number of ships that use the waterway due to the worst drought in more than 70 years. Annual droughts made worse by climate change are drying up the lakes that feed the Panama Canal. Now the locks that lie between Panama's Atlantic and Pacific coasts are getting too shallow to let the largest container ships through. The lack of rain is forcing the waterways authorities to reduce the number of ships passing through the canal. Those that do must carry less cargo to conserve water. And as trade dries up there, nearby countries spy an opportunity. The Panama Canal is really important in terms of world trade. Kate Parker is a risk expert over at our sister company, the Economist Intelligence Unit. And because so many ships use the canal, it makes Panama a lot of money. Two and a half billion dollars in profit last financial year. And that's roughly equivalent to 3% of the country's entire GDP. And now what we're seeing is that the canal is operating at a reduced capacity. And all of a sudden, countries close by are thinking about how they can take a slice of that pie. So which countries think that they can get a slice? 
Well, it's essentially those countries that have both Pacific and Atlantic coastlines and reckon that they can find a way of linking the two and transporting some of that container traffic. We're mainly, but not exclusively, talking about land options here. So either railway or roads. There's one project in particular that is close to completion, and that's a railway that crosses southern Mexico. The idea is that ships can dock at a port on Mexico's eastern Atlantic coast and then unload containers onto trains, and then these are all transported across Mexico and then reloaded onto a waiting ship on the western Pacific coast. Mexico's president has really emphasised these kind of big infrastructure projects since he took office back in 2018, and this railway is very much seen as one of these flagship projects. Most of the railway has been built, and passenger services have already begun on one of the three lines, and we saw the president cutting the ribbon with great fanfare back in December. Se empezó a explorar la posibilidad de hacer un paso que uniera a los dos grandes océanos del mundo. Big infrastructure projects in Mexico in recent years have been played with delays, and the government is pretty insistent that the project should be completed by the end of the year. Okay, and and who else is in the running? Who else has uh, an Atlantic and a Pacific coast? Colombia, too, is planning something similar. It's more at the drawing board stage, but essentially they're also thinking about a cross-country rail network for freight that crosses the north of the country. There are some road-based projects, too. The main one to mention is called the Capricorn Corridor, and that crosses South America, as its name indicates, broadly across the Tropic of Capricorn. Now, it's a much longer route. It's about 1,400 miles, so it wouldn't compete for that traffic from the United States, simply because it doesn't make much sense for ships to trek all the way down to then unload containers onto trucks and then across a very long cross-country route. But it could be quite a useful route for South American trade to Asia, in the sense that this trade doesn't need to loop northwards via Panama. And you said we were going to be talking mostly but not exclusively about land routes. What about something not unlike Panama where you get across on water? There's certainly the desire to create another waterway. Nicaragua, in particular, would like to build its own canal. A previous government did try. It gave a contract to a Hong Kong firm to build a canal, but it was a complete mess. The firm went under and nothing ever came of it. That was 10 years ago, and the current government has said it's looking for new investors. But I think the problem is that it would just be so expensive. There's another uh, sea-based option that people are starting to talk about. It's called the Northwest Passage, and that's up through the Arctic across Canada's northern coast. And the reason that there's speculation this might become viable for shipping is climate change. So the route is currently completely frozen over. We're in the middle of the Northern Hemisphere winter. But there is a window of a few months in the summer when it is passable. And in the next couple of decades, some people think that this window will become much bigger. So some options here that are much perhaps later in time or uh, projects that are kind of hung up or projects that were really messy the last time they tried. Is any of these an option that might reasonably replace the Panama Canal? No, I don't think that any of these projects will replace the Panama Canal. I'm slightly sceptical about whether the likes of Mexico and Colombia will actually be able to lure much of the canal traffic away at all. These governments are are really pushing their road and rail projects hard, and they're making a big deal about the fact that it's quicker than crossing the Panama Canal. They are right that the actual rail component of the journey will be quicker, but when you think about actually how long it will take to unload all of these containers onto trains, and really large ships can carry 14,000 of them, the entire journey will 
take much longer. And it's just the same story for unloading onto trucks for those road-based projects as well. It's just really slow. Maritime routes are so much easier. And also there's already an established rail route across America. So I think the shipping firms would be much more likely to opt for that if they have to resort to a land route rather than some of these Latin American alternatives. I don't think that all of these potential problems necessarily mean that these projects are completely pointless because I do think they serve a purpose. In the past, when we've had capacity issues at the Panama Canal, there haven't been at Suez and vice versa. But it is entirely possible that we might in the future have problems at both canals because of security problems in the Red Sea, climate change in Panama. In that scenario, these land routes might really come into their own. You know, yes, they might be imperfect. Yes, they might take longer. But I do think that a suboptimal alternative route on land is certainly better than no alternative at all. Thanks very much for joining us, Kate. Thank you, Jason. In the 1980s, Canadian pig farmers were told that their animal's gene pool was too thin. So they crossbred their pigs with wild boars from Britain. The result? A larger creature with an extra rib and more meat per beast. But in 2001, the market for boar meat plunged. Unable to sell stock, a few farmers released their hybrid pigs into the wild. What they didn't know was that two decades later, there would be 62,000 of these pigs' descendants roaming around and ravaging Canada's prairie provinces. They are huge, and they have these self-sharpening tusks. Their lower tusk is shorter than their upper tusk, and what happens is that they just sharpen themselves. Peg Fong is The Economist's Vancouver correspondent. They're roaming around the prairie provinces. Meaty breeding lends them troublesome bulk. For example, one captured boar weighed more than 280 kilograms. Wow. Okay, that does sound pretty massive. Tell me a bit more about these hefty animals. They're very adaptable. And what they have adapted to are these cold prairie winters. I spoke to Ryan Brook, animal and poultry scientist from the University of Saskatchewan. He had many more details. He told me they're so well adapted. They have thick fur. They have long legs that let them traipse through snow. They can be very cozy underneath this huge blanket of snow. And to make matters worse, they're especially very prolific breeders. But Peg, what makes these pigs so dangerous? They're destructive. They're opportunistic omnivores. They feed by shoving snout and tusks into soil in search of grub and roots. We've heard of examples where prairie farmers have woken up and in the middle of the night, these pigs have destroyed acres of their crops. And some Canadian farmers now live in fear of discovering these acres of crops plowed by herds of pigs overnight. And is there anything that can be done to control this? So far, Canada's animal management programs have been no match for these pigs. Uh, They've removed a mere 300 of them in 2023. And what Ryan Brooke has said is that even getting rid of 10 times as many of these pigs, it's not going to be enough. They've actually multiplied so much that they're in danger of spilling across the border into the south. Peg, what impact could the wild boar crossovers have in America? 
Well, American pork producers are concerned. It could have a big impact, especially in disrupting the food production. I spoke with Lori Stevemer. She's a Minnesotan who sits on the board of the National Pork Producers Council. I grew up on a pig farm and married a pig farmer. So She's been involved in discussions with Canadians regarding well, the issue. The biggest concern is the fact that feral pig population could be a harbinger and then a way of transmitting Farmers and pork producers in northern United States are worried about the damage to crops and the potential for these wild pig herds to be a vector for African swine flu and other diseases. And this could cost the domestic pork industry $7.5 billion of its roughly $20 billion in annual sales. That's according to a recent study by Iowa State University. Wow. Okay, so there's not much that they can do here. Well, you know, the U.S. has already been fighting a big feral pig problem in the warm south in places like Florida. And there is concern that their physiology is actually better for the cold weather. So what does this mean? It means that it's no longer just a southern U.S. problem. It's now becoming a northern U.S. problem. And these new swines coming down out of the Canadian prairies into these chilly northern states is a cause for serious concern. What I've heard from experts is that it seems to be the beginning of a very serious long-term problem. Peg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.